Leonard Lopez at large on WBAI. Sean B. Carroll, the Vice President for Science Education at the Howard Hughes Medical Institute and the, the Ballas Simon Chair of Biology at the University of Maryland, is an award-winning biologist, writer, professor, and film producer. His latest book, A Series of Fortunate Events, makes a strong case for randomness, arguing that there is no divine purpose or hidden reason governing events, small or large, and that not only is the course of human history a result of random occurrences, but also the entire history of the Earth, the evolution of the myriads of species over hundreds of millions of years, and our own evolution. And he extends his argument to better understand how infectious agents proliferate, how our immune system works, and why cancers become more likely as we get older. His book is published by Princeton University Press and brings Professor Carroll to our show now. Welcome. Thanks, Leonard. Nice to be back with you. Uh, let's begin with the fact that the Indian subcontinent wasn't attached to Asia more than 60 million years ago. How much do we know about continental drift? Well, continental drift has had a long and somewhat zigzaggy history, uh, both in science and on the face of the planet. But, you know, it was a big idea in the early part of the 20th century that um, did not get much traction until the 1950s or so when the physical evidence um, started to accumulate in a way that we understood that, in fact, yes, the uh, continents and the oceans were sliding around on these tectonic plates and that there had been uh, quite a lot of rearrangement in the face of the earth um, over hundreds of millions of years. And it pushed the Himalayas up. And that had a significant effect on the earth's climate. How, yeah, so the, and what was the effect? Well, the, the effect was to start the cooling that led to the glaciation of the Antarctic and eventually into the ice ages. So about 140 million years ago, so these continents have both come together and broken up at different times. And about 140 million years ago, a supercontinent called Gondwana broke up. And the Indian subcontinent was a little chip of that. Um, it sort of broke up into random pieces, much like a kitchen plate breaks when it hits the floor. And the movement of these plates there seems to be determined by their, their overall size and thickness. And this chip, the Indian subcontinent, was a small uh, plate, and it was moving faster than the other plates. And it started out, say, 40 or 50 million years ago, it was south of the equator um, and was racing uh, northward towards Asia. So, yeah, it was nearer to Madagascar and race, racing towards Asia. And when it hit Asia, it started the building of the Himalaya. And that massive um, rock building uh, pulls CO2, pulls carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. And that driving down of carbon dioxide put us on this tipping point uh, into first the glaciation of places like the Antarctic and then the ice ages. So that's a lot of geology in, in one minute. But the, the reason why that's really important is that the last two million years on Earth have been really unusual. This is the first ice age in 300 million years. And the more we study human history and our ancestors, particularly in Africa, we come to appreciate that um, we're, we're a mammal that has, it is really very much a product of the Ice Age. We have, we have learned to make our own habitats, um, used our big brains um, to, to make our way through and with greater success than a lot of the other lines of life on Earth. But uh, did the, uh, the slamming into Asia, creation of India, have any impact on the dinosaurs? The demise of the dinosaurs generally believed to have been caused by an asteroid hitting the Earth. Right, and that was earlier. So, so if you imagine a day on Earth 66 million years ago, a day like any other day until this six-mile-wide rock came through the atmosphere, crossed the atmosphere in a second, slammed into the Yucatan Peninsula. And probably most listeners are familiar with the story from there that that asteroid impact caused a mass extinction that took out the great dinosaurs. The collision between India and Asia was uh, 20 million years or so later. So the dinosaurs were long gone, and this building of the Himalaya and the further cooling of the planet was, um, was a subsequent collision and, and consequence. So those are just two examples of sort of, you know, <laughs> rock slamming into rocks that had profound effects on the direction of life on Earth. Well, that mass extinction opened up a, a slew of ecological niches that over the course of millions of years were filled by mammals. What were some of the advantages mammals had over reptiles that prevented rep dinosaurs from evolving again? 
from evolving again? It's a great question. Um, what, what we do know, if we just go to the evidence, birds came and, out of them, but you would have you could have had a, a, a back evolution, couldn't you? Sure, sure. I think uh, you know some, something's going to fill the void, and it didn't refill with dinosaurs. It it, it refilled with mammals. But even birds. You, let's just talk about birds for a second, because we'll we'll go up there. Birds had evolved uh, tens of millions of years before the asteroid impact. So in this is a period called the Cretaceous, and Cretaceous skies had lots of different kinds of birds. Only one line of birds made it through the asteroid impact. So bird diversity shrunk. Uh, uh, by a great degree. And then the large reptiles, um, dinosaurs, et cetera, uh, none made it through. But other things like crocodiles and turtles did pretty well. And in fact, there's probably a clue there in that crocodiles and turtles did pretty well and that those are aquatic or semi-aquatic beasts. The birds that made it through are generally shore birds or burrowing birds and the mammals that made it through. So mammals were around for 100 million years uh, alongside the dinosaurs, but they were generally small, you know, a pound or two in body weight, burrowing, probably a good number of them nocturnal. But you took out these big dinosaurs and the world opened up. And we can see, and this is a really exciting discovery from last year um, out of Colorado, there's a fabulous fossil deposit just discovered in Colorado that preserves the first million years after the asteroid strike. And in those fossils is, is documented the very rapid growth in body size of mammals so that in the first million years, mammals became far larger than had ever been before. So that sort of race, the sort of reset button on Earth was, was hit by the asteroid and mammals rushed in and kind of filled the void Noah and became the largest creatures on land and, and in the seas. So we could have had dinosaurs back if they hadn't been all wiped out. We could have had, you know, perhaps some other reptiles evolving to be really huge, but it was mammals that, that uh, took the crown and, and became this. The last 66 million years are known as the age of mammals. You discuss the concept of fibrillation uh, <laughs> or rapid climate fluctuation. When did it occur and how was it discovered? Well, that's a great uh, question, and it's, uh, it's something that really surprised scientists. So, you know, a lot of different kinds of scientists have been trying to figure out the history of the planet. And in the book, I stay pretty much in the last 66 million years, because I think these things feel sort of proximate to us, that the rise of the age of mammals gave rise to primates, which eventually gives rise to us, so we can kind of connect the dots between things. Well, in the last two million years, the climate has been um, really uh, turbulent. Um, with big swings between cooling and warming, as in the ice ages, ice, for example, in the northern hemisphere advances, uh, you know, as far south as say, you know, Cincinnati, and then retreats again. And these are huge ice sheets. So, but what we knew about that, sort of in general, that there are ice ages, but we didn't know is that even within those periods of either warming or cooling, there were very rapid climate fluctuations. And this was discovered by scientists by drilling ice cores into Greenland and being able to see in the, in the air bubbles trapped in the ice in Greenland, uh, big swings in, in the climate. And so only... And do we know why? Obviously, it wasn't the result of fossil fuels being no, emitted into the air. it was not. It's a great question. Uh, this, is a play, this is where, for example, uh, Columbia's uh, uh, university's fantastic geology department um, shines because a lot of the thinking has come out of there, in particular, uh, late geologist uh, Wally Brecker. And um, what we know is, is that some of these swings are probably due to the rapid melting of water, of ice on Greenland. And it's connected to the way uh, heat gets transported by the Atlantic Ocean. So we know about the Gulf Stream, and we know that warm water kind of gets carried north by the Gulf Stream, and then um, that can evaporate off. But um, the melting of glaciers will put fresh meltwater into the ocean and actually interrupt this sort of conveyor belt of heat that's going through the ocean. So, and that can cause a very rapid flip in climate. So about 25 times in the last 100,000 years, the climate has shifted abruptly by perhaps, at least in Greenland, by 20 degrees Fahrenheit or more, uh, sometimes in as short as a decade. And that's, um, that stunned when, when people drilling ice cores in the 1990s discovered this. They, they were stunned. They just showed that 
revealed that the climate is, as one described it, an ornery beast um, that that flips back and forth. And, you know, it, it just builds a picture of just how unstable <laughs> the world we live on is. I mean, um, over thousands of years, it kind of looks a little stable. Over millions of years, maybe even a little bit more stable. But in between, you realize that any given part of the world can experience some pretty big swings. Isn't what you part of what you specialize in being called evolutionary development, Evo Devo, or is it Evo Devo? Evo Devo, that's right. Evo Devo. I think, I think you interviewed me, Leonard, 15 years ago yeah. when I wrote the first book on Evo Devo. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, it was a long time ago. I'm not sure I remember everything that we talked about. But, no, me neither. Uh, you, you write about how Darwin's thought evolved in ways that he tried to resist but couldn't. Yeah. Well, this is the thing. So chance, you know, all these things we're talking about, asteroids or ice ages or continents colliding, all these things are you know, sort of the, the billiard balls of chance, you know, uh, ricocheting across the face of the earth. And when Darwin first started thinking about how life changed, um, you know, he was he was wrestling with many things. The, the societal pressure was that the idea was that species were divinely created and placed on Earth, you know, in the best habitats that suited them. And his thinking was headed in another direction after he saw the way creatures were distributed on the planet, you know, throughout his voyages. But as he got into this, he started thinking about, well, you know, how would things change? And um, really influential to him was just thinking about breeding. And, you know, by that time, you know, a very common practice in England and elsewhere in the world was the breeding of livestock or the breeding of things like dogs or pigeons for hobbyists. And in that process, you know, any breeder knew that animals were variable. And so Darwin thought, well, if animals are variable and the hand of man can shape such changes as we see in all dog breeds or in the scores of pigeon breeds that were popular at the time, well, what can nature do given a lot more time and the whole surface of the earth to play with? But then the question became, what is the source of that variation? And this is where it got tricky for Darwin because the science really wasn't there yet. But he, in, he intuitively had a good feel for it, which was he knew that if you were a breeder and you hope to sort of push a breed in a particular direction, it was best to have a large flock or herd or, or field, whatever you were working with, because you had a better chance of coming up with that variant. So Darwin knew there was a role of chance, a role of probability in the origin of variation. He just couldn't say much more about it. Because, I mean, the field of genetics didn't exist yet. So we didn't know about genes. We didn't know about mutations or anything like that. But he still had the right sense that there was a role of chance. Now, he touched on chance in the origin of species a few times, and some of his readers and critics, you know, perceived what that meant. But that was a very dangerous area. In a world that believed in design and a designer, you know, chance was the absolute, you know, opposite of that and really reviled and rejected. So science over the last century and a half, as it learns more and more about chance, is, you know, continually is sort of dissolving a lot of notions that people have had about the absence of chance and, and the, um, you know, sort of intention and design in the world. We, we see less and less scientifically, <laughs> and other people uh, cling to a, to a more designer-driven view. Hasn't the understanding of pigeon subspecies differences enabled a better understanding of how woolly mammoths adapted to the cold? Yeah, well, pigeons, uh, I, I, I tell a story in the, in the book about pigeons because they were, yeah, Darwin, just imagine this Victorian gentleman who was absolutely delighted to start breeding pigeons and hang out in pigeon clubs and things when, you know, he's pretty much a recluse. So uh, quite a quite a turn of, of events in Darwin's life. But, um, and we now know that all those varieties of pigeons are actually modifications of one species. And we also now know exactly what mutations some of those pigeon breeders were selecting for to make, give them fancy crowns on the head and things like that. Well, that just gives us a general insight that invention is a matter of chance, that we understand all the way down to the level of genes and to the level of DNA that variety 
arises through a chance-based mechanism, and that chance is an inventor. And another story I tell in the book is, for example, about how woolly mammoths adapt to the extreme cold, and we understand exactly some of the, some of the changes that woolly, had to happen in woolly mammoths for them to live in the deep cold in order to, for example, um, keep their extremities warm and transport oxygen out there. But the general theme of those stories that I'm but telling you— But then they you, died off. Well, they did die off and because the world changed, and the things that had made them better fit in those colder climes made them less fit when mm-hmm. the climate changed. And that's the story of life on Earth, is that Earth keeps changing, and life changes with it, which means new things arise and older things go extinct. Um, but the what, what people, I think, have underappreciated, and one of my motivations for writing this book, is the role of chance. We've all heard of natural selection, but there's this chance-based mechanism that is sort of the ultimate inventor of, of all variety. You're listening to London Lopit at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming at WBAI.org. My guest is Sean B. Carroll, whose latest book is A Series of Fortunate Events. Uh, Darwin resisted publishing the conclusions that his research had led him to. Was he uh, afraid of a backlash from religious people? Oh, that's a great question, Leonard. And I've, been, I've even more recently been sort of swimming in the literature of that day. It, that's been grist for scholars for many decades. Why did Darwin hold back? I, I think there's probably two truths that we can all recognize. One is when Darwin first got his idea that species changed and how they change through natural selection, he had just gotten off the boat. He was 27 years old. He had just spent five years voyaging on the Beagle. He was just sort of getting accepted into, you know, scientific society. And here he had these really radical ideas that would be absolutely running, you know, opposite to what his mentors and all of the sort of elite of British science, you know, held dear. At the same time, he felt, well, there's going to be such reaction to this. I really need to test these ideas out. I really need more evidence. So his reluctance was understandable from both a social point of view, but also from a scientific point of view that there was a lot more to investigate. And he did an enormous amount of work over the next 20 years as a naturalist and geologist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and his pigeon work, right around 1855, so he gets back from the, from the Beagle in 1836. He really has the fundamental ideas of evolution by 1838. He doesn't get to pigeons till 1855, but the reason he's breeding pigeons, Leonard, is he wants he's see he's not writing just for scientists. When he's writing the or, Origin of Species, he's writing for the educated layperson, and he's thinking, how can which I? Which is what this? he was. Which he was exactly yes. He wasn't um, really a scientist. Well, in he fact, was, uh, that probably allowed him to do certain things like travel instead of staying in a uh, in a, a college. You know, environment an or, academic. or a laboratory, yeah, yeah. whatever. Yes, he was. He was a gentleman naturalist who really int- who intended to go to divinity school. He was going to be sort of a country vicar. That was his plan until he got invited on this trip on the on the Beagle. So, <laughs> irony of ironies. But when he started breeding pigeons, his idea was: how can I both sort of make accessible and persuasive the idea that one species could give rise to all sorts of forms. So when he'd been to the Galapagos, he saw all these species of finches that must have come from some ancestral finch. He said, well, I'll show you how all sorts of pigeons can come from one form of pigeon. And that's really what he he spent the last few years before the origin doing. And that's how he opened the origin of species. The first 10 pages of arguably one of the most important books ever written is devoted to pigeons. (laughs) <laughs> and not a word to finches, contrary to most people's ideas. So that was Darwin's clever, you know, strategy. He he, he definitely had a strategy of, of essentially building the case. He calls his book One Long Argument, and he's building the case for change, for evolution in the in the manner that he said. So, uh, yeah, so pigeons played a critical role in... Um, Well, it's interesting that Darwin wasn't a scientist by profession, but he revered scientists like the geologist Charles Lyell. Didn't Lyell come up with an explanation for climate change? 
Well, Lyle, yeah, Lyle was a, was a key, well, really, we'd sort of consider him the principal figure of geology. The idea that the Earth changed and changed a lot and that, you know, given time, um, you know, all these forces, you know, would reshape the, the face of the Earth. So Lyle, in fact, Lyle was one of the books that Darwin took on his voyage, along with the Bible. Darwin believed in the literal truth of the Bible when he boarded the Beagle. Um, but Lyle was a huge influence. And when Darwin got back to England and Lyle and he, you know, were, uh, were introduced and he could kind of meet his hero and, um, he, you know, he became a close correspondent of Lyle's for the, really for the next several decades. Um, so ideas were, were about that, you know, the earth was changing, you know, there were big ideas in astronomy that had been hatched. There were big ideas in physics, et cetera. All these natural laws were being defined. This was a sort of golden age of science. And Darwin was thinking, well, you know, why wouldn't life follow some laws? If we believe there's laws that, that govern, you know, universes and planets and all these phenomena, why, why not life? And that's really what Darwin introduced was some, um, some rules, he, I guess, we would say about life. But he wasn't alone. Didn't Alfred Russell Wallace independently conceive a theory of evolution through natural selection? Absolutely. Why, One of the, why isn't he remembered uh, as well as Darwin today? Oh well, I've, let me just put it this way: I've, I've tried. Wallace's story is is, is fantastic because Wallace Wallace went out after Darwin. In fact, somewhat inspired by Darwin uh, to pursue specifically this question of the origin of species. Spends four years in the Amazon. As he sails home, his ship catches fire and sinks, taking most of his specimens to the bottom. After 10 days in an open lifeboat, he's rescued, gets back to England, realizes, well, he doesn't have the material he needs to kind of you know, make a go of it, and goes back out to the Malay archipelago, hopping island to island to island for eight years, collects 120,000 specimens. And about four years into that voyage, he's making very similar observations as Darwin. When he goes island to island, he sees slightly different species on adjacent islands, just as Darwin saw in the Galapagos. And he starts to write up his thoughts, and he sends them to the greatest naturalist in England. <laughs> he sends them to Darwin. <laughs> and Darwin gets this letter and says, oh, my, you know, this is before Darwin's finished his book. And he's like, you know, oh, my goodness. Um, you know, what do I do? He actually turned the matter over to Lyle and another naturalist um, to sort of handle. But Wallace's story is, you know, um, is less well known, even though, you know, I think it's more heroic. He was a man of very little means, um, you know, self-taught, 12 years out voyaging the world. Um, but, you know, he when he came back, he didn't have prestigious positions. He was not a wealthy man. His collections were not kept together as well as Darwin's were. Um, and, and so I think both biology and history have not been, um, have kind of failed Wallace a bit. Uh, in his, while he was alive, he outlived Darwin. He was, uh, he and Darwin were, were very warm friends and, and Wallace just admired Darwin endlessly. He was even a pallbearer at Darwin's funeral. Um, and he lived, uh, outlived Darwin by three decades. As but I understand it, a century Darwin later, we've forgotten him. Yeah. As, as I understand it, Darwin never fully understood the actual mechanism of evolution because he lacked microbiology. Isn't that where randomness enters the picture and explains why the evolution of species from a subspecies to a separate species takes so long. Uh, I figure that you give a, a, a two million years. Yes, absolutely. So this is the crucial thing. So there was this, there were just mysteries that Darwin couldn't penetrate because the science wasn't there. And the fundamental thing was genetics, heredity. How are things inherited? How do, how do traits change? DNA. That's DNA. And we didn't know about DNA for another century. Right. So um, we got to forgive Darwin would, would not be able to, to, to connect those dots. But since we cracked the structure of DNA, since we cracked the genetic code, well, now we're dealing down now with the very material of evolution, how changes in DNA change traits and how those traits you know, change the capability of, of uh, creatures. And this has been a golden age for evolutionary science for the last several decades, because we can really now connect all the dots. And fundamentally, you write, you, yeah, okay, I'm sorry, continue. Well, I was just going to say, and I write about it in the book because, 
you sort of need to know. We talk about random mutation, and what you have to picture is you have to picture this, you know, sea of DNA that you know we have. You and I have you know three billion base pairs in our in our to make up our our uh, hereditary uh, information. Changes taking place in it, and we it's only fairly recently that we're essentially able to catch chance in the act and understand how mutation is really a built-in feature of DNA, not a bug, but these changes take place in the bases that make up DNA because of those, the chemical properties of those bases. It's not due to even necessarily some insult from, from the outside world. It's an, it's an intrinsic property. So we've only really come to appreciate that you know, DNA is evolvable stuff um, in, in recent years. But uh, you say DNA has these four bases, uh, and they can easily make mistakes in, in bonding. Mistakes, is that what really causes the changes in, in uh, people? Uh, Leonard, we're, we're living in a world of mistakes. <laughs> look, look around you. I mean, all I the know. Glorious... I just watch, I watch the news every day. <laughs> yes. Well, that's a different type of mistake. But all the glorious diversity you see, both of, of all other species and of humanity, is due to change in DNA. It's due to mistakes. Did Watson and, and Crick understand that when uh, they... Yes, they got a glimpse of it. As soon as they solved the structure of DNA, they understood that if DNA was made up of these, these four bases, just letters we abbreviate as ACGT, and permutations of millions of them, that a change in one base would be a mutation. It took a while for us to really catch that in the act, but that is, in fact, what happens. And you and I are born, and every child is born with 20 or 30 mutations that weren't there in their parents. It's just the process of copying billions of letters. Um, changes happen, and changes happen due to the properties of the bases themselves. And if it wasn't true, life would have never changed. But, but all the glorious diversity is due to this random mechanism of change at the DNA level. And you write, I'm quoting, creative mutations are a small minority of all mutations and rare. Any mutation is rare at any specific position in DNA arising once in about 100 million individuals, depending on the species. So does that mean that evolution would be extremely unlikely if it were based on mutations alone? Well, it, it, there's, a lot, there's a various ways to shuffle the genetic deck, but given time and given sizable populations, then evolution does happen. And there's also usually more than one genetic solution to a, let's say, to a change. In other words, let's suppose that living on a, in a dark habitat or living on some black lava rock is a, is a good habitat for something. There's more than one way to darken your fur color, for example. So with multiple paths and with many individuals and given enough time, um, change happens. And it's easy for us to track this in things that are really numerous and reproduce rapidly, like microbes, uh, bacteria, and viruses. We can watch their evolution in the lab in, in one day. Harder to watch with elephants. <laughs> but, um, you know, what's true of bacteria is true of elephants. So we're, we're able to, to, to um, make those claims. And so, um, yeah, I mean, evolution it happens at different rates. The HIV virus is evolving incredibly rapidly because it has a very high error rate. Um, we're evolving much more slowly because we have a very low error rate in our DNA relative to something like a virus. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. appropriate to this conversation. But before I get back to my conversation with Sean B. Carroll, I'd like to take a minute or two to ask you to consider becoming a member of WBAI. We're asking all of our listeners to step up right now by going online to give to WBAI.org or to call 516-620-3602 to help keep this show and this station on the air in the wake of this terrible pandemic. 
Again, that number is 516-620-3602. We can go online to give to WBAI.org. And one great way to support WBAI throughout the year while spreading out your financial commitment so that it's only a small amount taken out of your credit card or your bank account each month is to become a sustaining member of the station, what we call a BAI buddy. And I'm delighted to announce that anyone who signs up to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopez at large right now will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing, this fascinating book, a, a series of fortunate events, chance and the making of the planet, life and you by my guest, Sean B. Carroll. But no matter what level you're able to show your support for the show and the station that brings it to you weekdays from 1 to 2 p.m., it all helps. The important thing is that you take that step to keep the show coming to you and all of your fellow listeners by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to give2wbai.org on the web. Join listeners who've already done their part, like Ken Coughlin of the Upper West Side, who just renewed his support for the station by becoming a BAI buddy. Thanks so much, Ken. Uh, but wh whether you're a longtime listener like Ken or have just discovered this show, why not become part of this amazing community of Leonard Lopate at Large listeners that's our only funding source? Only you can help keep independent 100% listener-funded radio alive on New York City's radio dial. And if you've supported the station in the past and your renewal has lapsed, this is a reminder. <laughs> Renew, please. Uh, believe me, we need that support now more than ever. Please don't forget to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And, and, th and from all of us, thank you so much. And uh, let's get back to my guest, Sean B. Carroll, whose latest book is A Series of Fortunate Events, Chance and the Making of the Planet, Life and You, published by Princeton University Press. Um, we, um, we, we, uh, let's talk about speciation or the evolution of distinct species that cannot reproduce with any but their own species. You say it takes about two million years for mammals and birds, but does it take less time for less complex organisms? Well, the, the two, thanks for asking that question. The, the two million year estimate comes from this. So, so let me tell you a little bit about how thinking has changed over time about species. So naturalists, biologists define species as things that can't um, that can only reproduce with themselves, right? So there's, mm -hmm. um, this is a sort of a, dis, you know, a distinct population that doesn't breed with another population. Well, as you probably have heard from lots of headlines, uh, let's take Neanderthals and Homo sapiens, that barrier between species is a lot leakier than we appreciated um, a few decades ago. And so even after some time in separation, things that were sort of on their way to being distinct species and what a naturalist might recognize as a distinct species might still be able to interbreed. And Neanderthals, for example, who had been separated from the line that gave rise to us for a few hundred thousand years, when we got back in contact in the Middle East uh, and in Southern Europe, um, genes were exchanged and, and um, we have Neanderthal, a lot of us have Neanderthal characteristics. But we can't go any back any further. We can't interbreed with uh, even the most highly developed apes, for example. Correct. Um, it, the expectation is no. I tell a story in the book of someone who tried that experiment uh, and failed. Um, I would say, thank goodness. Uh -huh. um, this is a family show. Yes. Well, even then, you know, that it was it was considered a legitimate scientific question in the 1920s when he was trying to do it. But anyway, back to back to your question about species and about time. It's generally thought that while there's lots of ways for populations to get isolated, imagine, for example, uh, you know, birds fly to a different island and now they're separated for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. But if you put them back in contact and they can at least, say, get over the behavioral or maybe anatomical barriers to breeding, they could make young. They could be fertile. But the longer that time, that isolation is, what happens is they build up lots of changes in their DNA so that really their genes are no longer compatible. And for men, why do they, why do the, does the DNA change? Because of environmental things or just because over time DNA changes? Over time, DNA changes. Some of that is going to be um, driven a little faster by natural selection, but a lot of it is just 
um, background changes in DNA. And it just turns out then that with enough change built up, species are incompatible. For example, we, we and chimpanzees have different numbers of chromosomes. Um, so very similar sets of genes, but they're organized a little bit differently. Our chromosomes and chimpanzee chromosomes won't get, get along very well together. And that's going to lead to uh, infertility. In other words, e even if you could fertilize a chimpanzee egg or vice versa, um, the young's not going to make it very far because the genetic machinery is going to have trouble working. So the, the estimate from looking at lots of, and it's just an average and it's an estimate, is that might take about about 2 million years for the sorts of animals that we think about, you know, birds and, and mammals and all that, that, that that's the point of no return. But at less than that, still a chance for creatures to get back together, make young and sort of start blending their, their, their genes together again. And that's consistent with the Neanderthal. I think we were separated from Neanderthals for probably about 300,000 years, about 60,000 years ago. Uh, got together again, and there was definitely uh, interbreeding. Uh, but the point is to say is that you think of that great tree of life, and you think, you know, all the diversity of all the living world, and you realize that it's really the product of two chance-driven pro chance processes. This internal mutation process that goes on at the DNA level, and this external process, which is the physical world, the rising and falling of mountain ranges and the meandering of rivers and ice ages and all this sort of stuff. Creations it, of uh, creation of savannas. That's right. All that, all the ch physical changes to the face of the earth that isolate species and all that. Well, that's a huge array of random factors. And so really the diversity of life is the product of these two um, chance driven processes, one in living things, DNA and one the external physical world, and that gives us this you know incredible planet we live on. Now, since viruses can evolve quickly, does that mean yeah. that we can expect plagues and pandemics to occur regularly, or have the, yeah. is that what's been happening all along? And is well, there that, any way to anticipate them, prepare to survive them, or or decrease their effect or frequency? These are these are great questions, Leonard. And I want to tell you, I, I started I started writing this book long before COVID hit, and I, I did actually talk about the AIDS pandemic in the book. And then during the edit, I wound up talking about COVID. So the the short answer to your question is, yes, we should expect these. Um, now, whether they become pandemics, I, so let me distinguish pandemic from just the initial event. There are millions of viruses out there in wildlife. Um, most of the time, we're not going to come in contact with them, but some of those viruses can infect humans. They're randomly mutating. By chance, some of them might be able to infect humans. Now, the question is, do we get in well, contact bitten with by them? ticks, for example? Bitten by ticks uh, or mosquitoes, mm -hmm. or for example, we eat bush meat, um, you know, uh, harvest wild animals, which could be, you know, a, a deer here in Maryland, or it could be, you know, a, a, a chimp in West Africa. Um, then there's a chance for what we call a spillover event, where an animal virus gets into a human. Now, that's happened a lot. It's the, it's the root of AIDS. It's the root of Ebola. It's the root of Zika. It's the root of flu. It's how measles happened. It's a lot of things. And, but whether it goes pandemic has to do with lots of other factors. And, of course, the mobility of society today is, is a huge factor in how this virus got around the world. You can imagine centuries ago it would be much more difficult for a virus to go around the world with the speed that, that COVID did. But sort of the picture to draw in, in listeners' minds is that there are a lot of viruses out there. You know, most of the time we're nowhere near them because they're living in wild creatures. But the more we sort of encroach on wild habitats, the more we harvest wild animals for food, the greater the risk of these spillover events. And so the expectation is, yes, we're going to see more spillover events. Now, you know, it hasn't made necessarily as much news, but something called MERS, Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome, which is a coronavirus, that spilled over from camels multiple times in the 21st century. SARS, which is mm -hmm. this uh, sort of the cousin to SARS-CoV-2, which started in the uh, around 2003, you know, that happened, and that came from palm civets, okay? So we have fairly recent experience with actually more deadly viruses than SARS-CoV-2, but those outbreaks didn't go very far. 
They didn't sweep across the world. So that's telling you that the sort of the matches keep getting struck, right? The spillover events keep happening. How far those spillover events go, well, that may be both a matter of luck and a matter of, you know, preparation and rapid response. Um, I think many people think that some of the countries in Asia did better with COVID because they've been through this before with, with SARS, for example, um, in, in locking people down and in tracing infections, et cetera, and um, sort of trying to break the chain of transmission very early. You're listening to Leonard Lopate at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM and streaming live at WBAI.org. My guest is Sean B. Carroll. Well, let's talk about humans. You write, we are each unique accidents, a collision of one genetically unique sperm with one genetically unique egg. So how does the recombination of human chromosomes and the fertilizing of the egg by the sperm produce so many possible variations in a child's DNA? This is wonderful. I hope this is something every listener can enjoy. So here's the pop quiz for today, Leonard, which is any two human parents, how many genetically distinct children could they have? Mm. Now, each contributes 23 chromosomes, 23 from dad, 23 from mom. And the answer is over 70 trillion. <laughs> that explains my siblings. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and that explained, you know, my mom stopped at four, so we didn't quite exhaust all the possibilities. Yeah, we had four, was, too. Why are men more likely to carry more risk of transmitting genetic disorder, and why is the risk higher in older men? Well, because um, our germ cells, as we age, they go through more rounds of DNA copying, and the number of mistakes made accumulates. So a man over 50 is much more likely to... Um, have mutation it was going to have, is going to have more mutations per sperm um, than say a 20 or 30 year old and this isn't theoretical the amazing thing is that because we can sequence dna we can show this empirically we can look we can take a mom a dad and children and we can pinpoint every mutation that has happened um that has been given to the child that wasn't there originally in the parent. So these are, these are new mutations we're talking about that happen in the process of making a sperm or of making an egg. And because men make, perhaps in the ballpark, two trillion sperm in the course of a lifetime, um, this, let's just say the sperm later in life are not quite as genetically pristine as those earlier in life. How about that? Can you explain what you call the staircase of self-defense, the, the process by which the immune system in every one of our bodies operates biochemically to develop antigens that precisely combat infectious agents and then replicates enough times to overwhelm the hostile, the hostile microbial yeah. invasion? I'm going to take a shot at it, Leonard, but I'm going to I'm going to issue a disclaimer to all listeners that this one this is a little tough, but I want to get the big let's get the big picture, and it's why I included it in the book. So there's a few different sort of chance-based mechanisms I talk about in the book: the, the sorting of chromosomes that gives us you know 70 trillion different kids, spontaneous mutations that happen. Um, I even talk about the genesis of cancer. But I also want to talk on the other side that we have this incredible system, the immune system that because of its ability to sort of shuffle the genetic deck can come up with billions of combinations of essentially chemical weapons that fight off infections, that fight off foreign things that get into the body, so that we actually use chance to generate this really large number of combinations of things such that we're basically assured to be able to generate the weapons that will counteract anything, including things we've never seen before. And this was one of the great mysteries of biology because we realized that, you know, when people, you know, whatever you expose them to, this virus or that virus or even something that, um, you know, was synthetic, um, the immune system could somehow recognize it. How did that work? It took decades to figure out, but fundamentally, we have a small, relatively modest number of genes that are involved in making what are called antibodies. And we're hearing a lot about antibodies in the news because antibodies are these proteins the body makes to fight off invaders. And what you want, because we, we are exposed to all sorts of things, you know, viruses, bacteria, parasites, um, fungi, right? 
we've got to be able to recognize lots of things to keep them suppressed, you know, so they don't take over our bodies. And, you know, we're living in a, you know, our skin, everything's covered with these microbes. Our gut is full of trillions of them. So we keep them in check through our immune system, and our immune system just has this arsenal that is a small number of genetic elements that are mixed and combined in various ways to make a very large number of different kinds of antibodies. It's the same kind of math that I just told you about with sperm and egg, that even if you have only 23 chromosomes from one contributor and 23 chromosomes from another, there are 70 trillion combinations of those chromosomes. Well, the same thing works in our immune systems. Even if you only have a few dozen antibody genes of one type and a few dozen antibody genes of another type, there's ways of mixing and matching these things that lead to billions of different antibodies that we make to, to ward off invaders. How this, do vaccines work to accelerate the process of developing uh, immunity? And, great and, uh, and what about vitamin supplements like C and D3? Are, are they uh, effective in the conversation that we're discussing here? Well, let me, let me go right to vaccines because this is hopefully something we're going to be talking about a lot over the next six months to get ourselves out of this situation. The whole idea of vaccines is, if you, let, me, let me just start with a natural response to a virus, including COVID. In the early days after you're exposed to the virus, the immune system is just getting going, and it's essentially a race where the virus is replicating and causing all these symptoms and, you know, killing cells and making many, many, many copies of itself, while the immune system is essentially just waking up, recognizing this thing and trying to get started. It takes time. And the reason why most people recover from COVID and from most viral infections is that within a week or two, the immune system has risen, has, has responded to a level where it can subdue the infection and we start to feel better. The idea behind vaccination is you give people a non-living non substance that, that resembles a piece of the virus that gets the immune system going so that it's already all amped up in case you actually encounter the real thing, the real virus. So what that does is that just squelches the ability of that virus to be transmitted through a community. And, of course, it gives those individual people protection so that either they don't get the infection at all, or if they do, it's a much shorter and less severe experience. So this is why the vaccine is so important, is to get us all better equipped. But you, it, we're just essentially trying to get a step or two ahead of the virus so that we don't suffer the symptoms and undergo the risk that people right now are getting when they're, when they're exposed to, to COVID, for example. So, um, yeah, so that's it's. That's what we've been doing for centuries. You know, we were vaccinating before we understood what the immune system was. Um, it was something that, you know, people, ancients had observed that once you got a certain infection, you didn't get it a second time. Well, that's, that's the marvelous part of the immune system is not only is it activated, it has really a memory. And so that it's sec upon second exposure, the immune system is much faster and much um, stronger than even the first exposure. So this is the whole rationale of vaccination, and that's why... Um, you know, hopefully we're going to have both a safe and effective vaccine. And this is what will uh, is our is our it's our path to back to normalcy. What about vitamin supplements? Do oh, they yeah, help? Sorry, that. I think I, I'm not well informed about vitamins, Leonard, and I, I should probably pass. I would just say that, you know, overall health status is real important, you know, for enduring any kind of challenge like an infection like this. So I don't know about particular vitamins, but I think, you know, um, we all want to be as healthy as we can be in, in this environment so that we are in our best, we have our best shot of, of fighting off um, this particular virus or, or any other, you know, the influenza is coming too this winter, right? You should point out that your book is an all dry science. Uh, we don't have any time left, but I wanted to mention that you include an imaginary conversation with Jacques Monod, Albert Camus, and Bill Maher uh, <laughs> that you moderate. Uh, and you have Marseille, if Christianity were the new religion, we would consider it just as crazy as Scientology. Uh, I guess you're an well, atheist. Guess, would you apply that to all religions? Uh, no, well, I'm letting those people speak for themselves. The last, the last part of the book is a conversation about, well, what does this all mean? If chance is driving all this, that, of course, challenges traditional ideas about cause in the world. And so I'll just, I'll just invite readers to 
enjoy that conversation and, and, and make up their own minds. And I thank you so much for a fascinating conversation. It's been a great pleasure talking to Sean B. Carroll about his latest book, A Series of Fortunate Events, Chance, and the Making of the Planet Life in You, published by Princeton University Press. And that brings us to the end of today's show. Special thanks to Joel Simpson, who prepared today's interview. And if you're just discovering this program and would like to hear more of our one-hour deep dive interviews, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as a podcast on iTunes or anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you'll find links to all of our past shows at uh, our show's website, LeonardLopateAtLarge.com. If you'd like to send me a comment, uh, about a program or, or just want to say hello, my email address is leonardlopate at wbai.org. Before I sign off, I'd like to ask you to support this show and the station that brings it to you. If you value the kind of informative, in-depth interviews we bring you on Leonard Lopate at Large, please go right now online to give to wbai.org or call 516 516- Six two zero three six zero two to help keep this show and this station on the air. And and one great way to support WBAI is to become a BAI buddy. They're, they're listeners who contribute $10 or more each month to keep the station running and to show their support for what we do on this show. And as I mentioned, at the half, anyone who becomes a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at Large in the next few minutes will receive a free copy of the book that we've been discussing, a series of fortunate events, chance, uh, and I, I have lost my, uh, <laughs> I have lost the, um, oh, here's my script, uh, chance, and chance affected me, and the making of the planet life in you by my guest, Sean Carroll. So one last time, the number to call is 516-620-3602, or go to give to WBAI. Org. And please be sure to make that contribution in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. We are off tomorrow, but we hope that you can join us on for Wednesday's show when Ken Quapis will discuss his new memoir. But what I really want to do is direct lessons from a life behind the camera. It's about his work directing iconic TV shows like The Larry Sanders Show, Freaks and Geeks, and The Office. I hope to see you then. <laughs>